We saw last time that Peter is writing to encourage and to strengthen believers that were facing severe trials and persecution. And uh, these opening verses that we have before us are his greeting, and he begins by emphasizing that those to whom he is writing are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And it's remarkable, really, that he chooses, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, to begin with a profoundly deep truth of God, almost in the the very first sentence of the letter, and that being the doctrine of God's election being chosen by God. And that great truth, that reality, brings comfort for those in the faith. And Peter intended to assure these early suffering believers of God's eternal and his steadfast love for them. But as soon as we mention that word election, we know that that draws a strong reaction from many. And this doctrine is perhaps one of the most hated, certainly one of the most misunderstood in Scripture. A writer called A.W. Pink put it like this, God's sovereign election is the truth most loathed and reviled by the majority of those claiming to be believers. Let it be plainly announced that salvation originated not in the will of man, but in the will of God, that were it not so, none would or could be saved. For as the result of the fall, man has lost all desire and will unto that which is good, and even the elect themselves have to be made willing and loud will be the cries of indignation against such teaching. Basically, he's saying this, that many, even those who profess the Lord Jesus, find it hard to understand and to accept the sovereignty of God in salvation and in election. They find it hard to acknowledge what it really means when we say that someone becoming a Christian is entirely God's work from beginning to end. And really, there are a number of issues that sort of come in that. One being that people, sometimes in their pride, want to get some of the credit, some of the responsibility for believing and having the ability and the wisdom to make the right choice. And really, when we come to this whole matter of the doctrine of election, it's one of the best ways to test whether we have changed roles with God, whether we've reversed those roles. And people also struggle with this because to them it seems unfair that God should choose some to be saved. But the reality is, the miracle is that God should save at all. But people hate that idea, and uh, that is often to do with fallen pride. They want to part. And let's ask the question well, is God unfair? Well, no, God is not unfair. We don't measure God by human fallen standards of fairness. Surely we don't really think that fallen sinful creatures as we are have a higher standard of what is right, what is perfect, even more so than an infinitely and eternally holy God. Surely we wouldn't take that view. Psalm 97 verse 2, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Therefore, whatever God does proceeds from that foundation of divine righteousness, perfection, and justice. Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And when it comes to this whole issue of fairness, there's also this idea of, of justice and divine justice. And God's justice is part of his character. His very essence, he is perfectly just in himself. And so a thing is just because God wills it, not because of any reference to fallen human standards. He sets the standard. And you know, if we were to receive God's justice, we would all be condemned to an eternity of punishment. The creator doesn't owe the creature anything. It is purely of his grace that sinners are saved. You know, how then could God be called unjust when whatever he does is just? And the fact that he has purposed for a, a vast, vast number to be saved when they did not deserve it, how could that be unjust? Salvation is always a matter of amazing grace. God dealing with sinners not in the way that they deserve, not in the way that they should have, but in wonderful mercy and deliverance. Grace, by its very definition, is something that God is not obliged or required to give. He owes a, a fallen, rebellious world no mercy. And if we cry out for justice at his hand, we could all receive the just condemnation that we deserve. Justice is what we deserve, but grace is what we don't deserve. And if we deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. And so it's in this context that, that Peter then brings this great truth to these suffering believers, and probably for some, it's a very surprising thing to start with. He begins with this great truth of, of sovereign election, the chosen. But there's a reason for this, because as he greets his readers, he wants them to appreciate their identity in Christ and the work of God in their lives. He wants them to know the great comfort that is there because of sovereign grace. That even in the, the fiercest and darkest trials, there is something so wonderful about the grace that has been given to them that it will give them to be joyful even when circumstances are bleak. And he speaks to them in these opening verses in, uh, in terms of their earthly place, but then their heavenly position. You know, if you look at the earthly place, in terms of their place on earth, they are pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So these believers are living as strangers, as pilgrims scattered throughout the various regions of the Roman Empire. And that word dispersion, it means a, a scattering, people being thrown, dispersed into many different places. Now, if you were to read through the New Testament, you would find it in places like John 7 and James 1. And there it describes the scattering of the Jews throughout the world. But here, Peter isn't using it in that technical way. Peter is speaking to believers who have been scattered. So in 1 Peter 1.17, he says, If you call on the Father... Conduct yourselves through the time of your stay here in fear. So he's speaking of those who know God as their father. And that can only be through Jesus Christ. We only know God as father through Jesus Christ. 
And so he is speaking to those who know God, who are believers, and to a people who are not just strangers and pilgrims in an alien culture, but who are strangers and pilgrims on the earth itself. They have been made citizens of a different land. You know, look at 1 Peter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So the pilgrims, again, are those who are new creations. They've been given new life in Christ, and they've got to fight and to stand against the, the flesh. And so it's language that talks about believers who are spiritually pilgrims in this world. So that's who's in view. The people of God, followers of Jesus, the church, a group of sinners saved by grace, pilgrims in this world, scattered throughout, all heading towards their eternal home. And so Peter is writing to this wide audience, which would include Jewish believers and Gentile believers, scattered in a, a spiritual sense, but also in a physical sense because of the persecution against them. So they're in all different parts of the empire. And we saw last time the reason for the persecution being that the believers, the followers of Jesus, have been blamed for the fire in Rome. And so the edict had gone out through the empire that Christians were to be persecuted. And the persecution was, was appalling. It spread through the empire. And so he is writing to his brothers and sisters to encourage them and to encourage them and teach them how to face this opposition triumphantly. Now, in these regions that are mentioned there, there will be a number of churches. So, for example, in Asia, we know that there are at least seven churches because they're mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3, and uh, many other churches in different regions. So, believers and fellowships scattered throughout this broken world. But then... He takes them from that and he highlights their heavenly position and their identity. You know, one of the key things that Peter does is to make sure the believers understand who they are in terms of how God sees them. Not in terms of how they're defined by Nero or Rome, their identity in Jesus Christ, that they are the called, that they are the chosen. And this amazing truth gives comfort in the darkest of days because when the suffering came to them, when persecution came, no doubt they would have been questioning so much. But he wants them to know the sovereign purpose of God towards them. The amazing grace that has saved them in the past will sustain them in the present and will keep them forever. And so he wants them to know that they are called, that they are kept, and they will be brought through. That's the comfort because it is all of the faithfulness and the grace of a great God. And so he writes to them in that way. Now these pilgrims, these temporary residents, they are passing through. They are headed to a city not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So they are temporary until they are called home into glory. And these believers, the redeemed, the chosen, they are literally the called out ones, the select ones. That's what the term means. And it's a term for all believers. So if you're a believer tonight, by God's grace, that is who you are. Those who have been brought to turn from their sin and to trust in the Lord Jesus. 
And you know, throughout the scriptures, you see that God is a God who acts and intervenes. That is what he does. You see it in the Old Testament with Israel. Think of Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. You know, Israel did not choose God. God chose them and set them apart for his purposes. And when working his purposes out, the Lord was not sat hoping that some nation might turn to him and choose him. No, he chose Israel to be a people for himself. Psalm 105, verse 43, he brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. And God's sovereign choice of Israel in his redemptive purpose in history is there. And the scriptures also underline the sovereign initiative of God in the salvation of believers through the ages. They are his chosen, his elect. And Peter greets them like this. And I want you to see, friends, tonight, very simply, that this truth is there all the way through. It is a vital truth. A vital truth, and we see it in the New Testament. Because some, when you talk to people, they say this truth of election, God's people being called out, set apart. They say, oh, well, you know, it's an obscure truth. And sometimes, you know, people, they, they highlight it too much. It's given too much prominence. Or the other, I could say, oh, well, it's a, it's a man-made thing. It was made up by that, that John Calvin all those years ago. I want to impress upon you the way that it is so clear in the Scriptures. You know, if we want to be faithful to the Word of God, we have to submit to the Word of God and embrace and believe it. And through the teaching of the Lord Jesus himself, all the way through to Revelation, we see this again and again and again. Matthew 24, the Lord Jesus is speaking of the last days, and he says this, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And the elect there are believers, those saved by sovereign grace, chosen before the foundation of the world. It's a term for the Lord's people. It's the way the Lord Jesus uses it. He speaks about the second coming of himself, the second coming of Christ. A little bit later, the same passage. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from one end of heaven to the other. He speaks final justice and vindication of God's people. Luke 18 and verse 7. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him? Paul writes about it in Romans 8. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? So it speaks about that vindication of God's people. Also, it speaks about how the elect should live in a way that reflects this grace. Think of Colossians 3. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. It's also used, this great truth, as a motivation in gospel work. 2 Timothy 2.10. Therefore, I will endure all things. Why? For the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 
You know, and as we see in this letter and many others, it identifies believers and as believers one to the other. Titus 1 verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. Even in those very little letters, think of 2 John 1, the elder to the elect lady and her children. And so when Peter here speaks of the chosen, he's speaking of believers, those who are saved. And he uses a rich term to remind them of their identity in Jesus Christ, saved by sovereign grace, that God has set his love upon them and that it is his work entirely. You know, it is also such an encouragement to these believers because he's saying, look, the world may despise you, the world may hate you. You may not be their choice, but God loves you and you are precious to him and he chose you from before the foundation of the world. What a wonderful encouragement that must have been. This great truth, which is hated by so many, is actually one of the, the greatest foundations that we can have for encouragement and so it was meant to be here. His purpose, his faithfulness, will keep his people forever. If God has chosen us for himself, if he has destined us for glory, then his faithfulness commits him to keep us through all the fiery trials of this life. And it gives us great hope and great confidence, not in ourselves, but in him. And so he writes to these pilgrims and he tells us, and really in this opening section we see so much, he identifies them as those saved by grace. And that description is there, as we said, for any follower of the Lord Jesus and pilgrims as long as we remain in this world. And just think, friends, you know, tonight, if you're a believer, if that's your state, because God has set you aside for himself from before the foundation of the world, chosen in Christ, called out, God has saved you and he will keep you. And so whatever it is that you're facing in your life at this moment in time, this should give you great hope that God will give to you that which you need to endure. And Peter says that this election is not our choosing of God. It is not God either choosing us because he saw something in us that compelled him then to save us. It is God saving us purely of his own mercy and grace. God saving people across time, across the world. Again, I want to highlight that. You see that in the scriptures. In the early church, there was the council of Jerusalem. And at that council, there's a great discussion concerning the way the gospel is going to impact the Gentiles. And during this, Acts 15 verse 4 it says, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. God calling out a people to himself, a people chosen, given to Christ before even time began. You know, maybe when you hear things like that, there is something in you that bristles, something in you that resists that. You dislike the idea, you dislike the terms. You know, and sometimes our, our fallenness doesn't want that because we want to think that we have a part, that it's our choice, not God's. And again, maybe you think it's unfair and how could God do this? And surely people deserve the right to decide what to do with God. Well, remember, we don't define what is fair. 
God does. And it's amazing that he should save any of those who have rebelled and rejected and hated him and despised his goodness and deserve punishment and condemnation. And again, it comes down to this. Are we willing to submit to what the Word says, to what the Scriptures say or not? Do we believe what the Bible teaches or not? Do we have a biblical view of God or not? Do we have a biblical view of man or not? All these things are bound up in our reaction to this great truth. And I want you to see further how it is so embedded in the Scriptures. The Lord Jesus, he speaks to his disciples in John 15, verse 16. This is what he said. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That sovereign action is seen in the fact they did not choose Jesus, he chose them, same principle as we see in salvation. John 17, that remarkable prayer of the Lord Jesus, what does he pray? I pray for them, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. Keep through your name those whom you have given me. And that phrase is repeated through the Savior's prayer. The Father chose us and gave us to his Son as a gift of love. If you are a believer tonight, you are part of that gift. That's a stunning thing. And in the growth of the gospel, the progress of the early church, in Acts 13, Paul has this amazing opportunity to preach to almost the entire city of Antioch. Can you imagine an entire city coming out and being there to hear the preaching of the word? And in verses 46 to 48, this is what it says. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you rejected and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And then it has this comment. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as have been appointed literally chosen, elect, to eternal life, believed. Romans 9, verses 14 to 16, key passage on sovereignty. You know, it includes, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And it goes on in that passage to say, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? God is God and we are not friends. And so when we think that somehow we know better than him, we just display our rebellion and our pride, the fallenness of our finite minds. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9, God is faithful. We all rejoice in that. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God decisively calling his people out of darkness into fellowship with his Son. 
And Paul, as he writes there, we looked at this at the ladies' meeting last week. Remember your identity. If you're a believer, God has called you into fellowship with his son. And due to God making the first move, you called on Jesus to be saved, to be your only hope, the one you live for. And so people being saved, it is God's action, it is his work, he saves whom he wills. And so when we look around at our brothers and sisters, we are to see those miracles of grace, those called out, those whose hearts have been captured by the Lord, the outworking of God's sovereign saving purposes of grace. Think of Ephesians 1, you know those great verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You know, just stop for a moment. Before the world existed, if you're a believer tonight, you were appointed to salvation. In fact, as long as God existed, which is forever, we have been in his purposes, chosen in eternity past. That is an incredible thought. It is a stunning thing. And why? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. His grace, his glory, not us. But there's a key thing there that Paul emphasizes, and that's this. We cannot and must not think of this election without Christ. You know, when God planned in eternity to pluck us out of our bondage to sin, he had Christ in mind as the way that he would do it. And so God planned before the foundation of the world to save us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, we see this emphasis too as Paul writes to the Thessalonians. He captures there the wonder again of sovereign grace. He says in 1 Thessalonians 1, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. He says, your transformed lives, they show the reality of God's deep work in you, that salvation appointed before time began. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. Now, you can't get any plainer than that. You can't get any clearer than that. Even the very last book of the Bible, Revelation 13.8 and 17.8, speaks of those who worship the beast as those whose names have not been written in the book of the life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, the saved are those whose names were written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. And so if you're a believer tonight, God has set his love upon you. He has called you out. He has given you as a love gift to his son before time began. It is a glorious thing. And why has he done it? Of his sovereign will and his good pleasure. Amazing grace, not what you deserved. 
Revelation 17, 14. The Lamb will overcome them, speaking of Antichrist and his host, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called what? Chosen and faithful. And so Peter, he's writing to these persecuted brethren, and he begins with this great truth to encourage them, the sovereign purpose of God in saving a people chosen from before the foundation of the world. And the scriptures are full of this truth. The wonder that God should save sinners who deserve nothing from him. And many don't want to hear it. Many hate it. But it's the truth. And the humble belief in the precious truth of election and sovereign grace produces true worship and true adoration and also true obedience. Friends, God is the most high God. He rules amidst the armies of heaven. None can stay his hand. None can say unto him, what are you doing? He's the almighty God who works all things after the counsel of his own will. He fulfills his own purposes and promise. And that is true in the salvation of sinners. I started with a quote from A.W. Pink. And he says this, the only reason anybody believes in election is because he finds it taught in God's word. No man or number of men ever created this doctrine. Like the doctrine of eternal punishment, it conflicts with the dictates of the worldly mind and is offensive to the sentiments of the unregenerate heart. And just like the doctrine of the Trinity or the miraculous birth of our Savior, the truth of election has to be received with simple, unquestioning faith. It's not an easy truth, but I believe it because the Bible teaches it. And it humbles us because we can claim nothing. There's no place for human pride. It affirms that God is God and that he is so, so gracious to those of us who could never have earned salvation or turned to him. And we will spend eternity praising his glorious name for such mercy and such grace and such pardon. And this great truth, it, it devastates our pride, but it maximizes our praise. And the Lord is consistent and he is just and he is perfectly righteous and he always does what is right. And so when you see the electing love of God in the scriptures, when you see it there in the Bible, you see the glorious comfort that it gives to those who do believe that though those difficult times will come, there is that certainty that this is not the end. There is a great glory to come. And his sovereign purpose, his faithfulness towards you is never in question. And he will keep you. And if God has chosen for him for himself, if he has destined us for glory, then his own faithfulness and honor commits him to keep us to the end. And so if we have any faith, any signs of life, any repentance, any trust in Jesus, it is of his hand. And we should praise him for it. And so believer, remember your identity. Remember the amazing grace that has saved you in the past, sustained you in the present, and will keep you forever. He holds you, and he will not let you go. But as we finish, I just want to say this. Some say that this 
Doctrine, this truth and a belief in it kills all passion to reach out with the gospel. It kills a, a passion to reach out to the lost and to reach out and to proclaim Christ and to pray for sinners to be saved. Friends, that's just not true. That's one of the great misunderstandings. Only God knows the heart. We don't. Secret things belong to him. We are called to preach the gospel to all, to plead with all, to turn and be saved. And what God has done to save us and call us to himself is not to tell us ahead of time if we are elect or not. God never reveals this except through a relationship with Jesus Christ so that Christ is central to our election. And so instead of telling us if we are elect or not, what God did was to send his son and say, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever believes in the son of God has this testimony in himself. And so if you're here tonight and you're not saved, I would say to you, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on him and you will be saved. Turn from your sin, look to the Savior who died on the cross for sinners and who is able to save all who call upon his name. He never casts out any who call upon him. He never turns that one away you know, maybe you hear these things and you think, well, how do I know if I'm called? How do I know? It's very simple. You trust the Lord Jesus. You trust him. And maybe you think, oh, there's no hope for me. But the freedom of God in calling sinners to himself is to give hope, not take hope. And it means that none is too bad. None is too hard. None is too far gone. Because God is free and God is rich to all who call upon his name. And he will save those who call on his name, who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you can call, then you are called. That's it. And so people sometimes, they wrestle with this. It's very simple. You trust the Lord Jesus. For those of us who trust the Lord Jesus, we can rejoice as we see them the eternal purposes of God opening up in front of us that he has set his love upon you and he will keep you now and forever. How these things should encourage us. Even though the days may be hard, God holds us and he will keep us and one day we will be with him. Amen.